0: Let's open our Bibles to Titus, chapter 2, verse 15, and tonight we'll cover the first two verses of chapter 3 as well. Titus, chapter 2, we'll finish that up and then move on to Titus, chapter 3. Uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles. Now, they weren't always known that way. Uh, They they weren't always known by that name, but that didn't really come into vogue until the mid-1700s. It's almost an unfortunate title. The title is almost unfortunate because it gives the people the idea that the pastoral epistles concern only pastoral ministry. And sometimes they are neglected or forgotten altogether. Well, that's too bad because there's a lot in the pastoral epistles, or the so-called pastoral epistles, about everybody's responsibility. First Timothy is a larger book, and it gives a more of a general outline. And the purpose for all the pastorals is given in First Timothy, that we would know how one ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And that's pretty broad. And that's not just leadership, but it's also the individuals within a church as well. Then Titus is written to ex- expand the idea of the, the leadership aspect of what uh, Paul began in 1 Timothy. And then 2 Timothy will expand upon the life. So you have the leadership of the church and the life of the church is, is part of the overall subject of 1 Timothy. And then you have the leadership of the church that is expounded upon in Titus. We're almost we're two-thirds of the way through it now. The life of the church will be expanded upon in Second Timothy. These are the last of the Pauline epistles. These are written after the prison epistles. You remember the prison epistles are written from 60 to 62. I don't know about you, but I kind of like to figure out how old people were when they did different things. Paul was probably, give or take a year or two, probably about the same age as our Lord. G- give or take maybe a year or two. At least that's what a New Testament scholarship has narrowed it down to. So the way I like to remember it is Paul was in prison in Rome in that first Roman imprisonment between his 60 and 62nd year. About the time he was between ages 60 and 62 is when he wrote the prison epistles. There are four that he writes. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And then during that imprisonment, then their first imprisonment in Rome, Paul is under house arrest. If there could be a relatively comfortable imprisonment, that would have been it. He rented his own quarters and was able to receive people, and, and visitors came and went. He it doesn't look like he was able to come and go, but he was under house arrest, and that lasted for, from the year 60 to 62, and he writes those four very important epistles. That's where the book of Acts ends. That's why it's a little cloudy as to when he writes these last ones, but we know sometime after he gets out of that first Roman imprisonment, he writes 1 Timothy and Titus somewhere probably along the years 63 and 64. And then finally, he's arrested again, either late in 67 or early in, in, in 68. So, again, if we were to figure out how old he was when he does this, in his late 60s, he's arrested for the final time, thrown into prison in Rome this time, the Mamertine Dungeon, not a pleasant place, not rented quarters, but a, a dark horrible place to be. Legend has it that Peter was in the same prison at the same time. That's probably just legend. Uh, legend also has it that Peter and Paul met on, on the way to their prospective executions and kissed and hugged and made up for any kind of animosity they had a, a, a prior to that. That is almost surely legend. But the fact of the matter is Paul's final imprisonment, the one that was in the Mamertine dungeon in Rome, it was not a pleasant experience at all. He is in chains in a dungeon. And that's where he writes Second Timothy. The only reason I tell you that is because when you read Second Timothy, it's, it's interesting to know the circumstances of the writing. That's why when you read the prison epistles and Paul says, says I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. you Remember, he's in prison in Rome at the time. We well, might think he was a prisoner of the Romans. Or maybe a prisoner of the Jews, but that's not how Paul looked at it. He looked at it. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and then this magnificent uh, epistle, uh, second epistle to Timothy, that he writes from a dungeon, knowing that by this time you can tell by the writing he knows he's not going to get out of prison this time. When he writes the book, the letter to the Philippians, he thinks probably he is. You can tell there's an implication, but not when he gets to Second Timothy, and then of course he's executed. Cindy and I visited Rome, and we stood right in front of that Mamertine dungeon. And one of the things that that uh, really struck me was first the close proximity. That it, that it bore to the Roman Senate. If you, could take a, if you were a good baseball player, or certainly a good golfer, could take a nine iron and hit it from, from the Mamertine Dungeon, to the hundred yards or so, to where Julius Caesar was assassinated. And that was kind of interesting, but the most interesting part that I thought was the geography of where Paul is when he writes the second letter to Timothy. The Mamertine Dungeon, as the crow flies, was not but about 800 yards from the Circus Maximus. Now there's a hill, Palatine Hill, where a lot of the emperors had their homes, right on the other side of that hill, scarcely half a mile away from where Paul was in prison that last time was the Circus Maximus. If you've seen Gladiator, you know all about the Colosseum, but that wasn't built until after Paul had already been executed. Where Christians were being fed to the lions while Paul was in prison was at the Circus Maximus. So Paul could have easily, should have easily, heard the roar of the crowd as the Christians were being persecuted Scarcely half a mile from where he was while he was writing these words, these beautiful words of Second Timothy. So Titus expounds upon the leadership of the church. Second Timothy is going to expound upon the life of the church. But but the key thing to my introduction tonight is Paul writes these epistles to tell us how we ought to conduct oneself in the household of God, which is the church. Today we have a lot of gray areas with regard to Christian behavior in ministry because these rules and regulations—if I could be so crass as to call them that—that's uh, a—that's a sarcasm—but but, but they, they 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 apply to the local church. They don't apply to parachurch ministries, and so therefore it's it's a little difficult sometimes to. for parachurch ministries like the College of Biblical Studies or like Dallas Theological Seminary or like KCB Radio to determine what kind of behavior they're going to insist upon in their leadership or the life within that particular organization. There has never been a time, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb at all by saying this, there's never been a time in our nation's history where we have had the availability of biblical teaching in the abundance that we have it available to us right now. It is available everywhere. I would say probably though seven eighths of it is available through parachurch ministries and not churches. Churches make tapes of what they do, they send them out, they put them on the internet, they put them on the radio, and that's all fine and dandy. And if that's the way the Lord wants to spread the message, that's fine. But 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 a Christian was never designed to grow with regard to their spiritual life outside of the local church, at least not not by the norm. It can happen in an abnormal circumstance. Everybody say, well, what about the person that's in Alaska, and they're 500 miles from anything else, and they don't have anything but a tape recorder? Well, okay, then just use the tape recorder. But aside from that, most of us aren't in that situation. To divorce ourselves from God's ordained plan and say, I'm going to grow the way I want to grow. Under the institutions that I want to grow under, I'm going to divorce myself from the local church and the community that exists there. You're going to do that to your own spiritual detriment. God designed the local church for these things. And so anything that you get from by, by way of tape, whether it's our tapes or anybody else's, please, don't sit home on a Sunday morning and say, listen, I can just listen to this on the Internet on Monday. You're hurting yourself terribly. And listen, it doesn't matter to me how many people come, you know. They pay me the same way either way, okay? That, it, doesn't, it doesn't affect my ego one bit, but I'm here to help you grow spiritually. And so if you take yourself outside of the, of the, the divinely instituted organization, organism, if you will, that was, that, was, that was manufactured by God to help you grow, you're going to hurt yourself. And far, uh, technology has helped us, and I've, I'm afraid technology has hurt us. Martin Lloyd Jones, who wrote a book called Preachers and Preaching back in the 50s, he was really the first one that was invited to go on, to, on radio in London. Martin Lloyd Jones, uh, in, his, in his book, first one thing, he, he said uh, he was asking uh, ask and answering a question in one particular chapter How long should a sermon be? Any guesses as to how long he said it should be? Great preacher in England and, and, uh, a generation ago. Two hours? I heard two hours. Anybody go for two hours? No, I didn't think you would. <laughs> you know how long he said it should be? Just as long as you need it to be to make your point. If you make your point in 30 minutes, make your point, and sit down. You know, if it takes you an hour to make your point, make your point and sit down. And the reason he didn't want to go on radio was, was twofold. The first one was, they said, listen, when the light goes on, you start. Because it was live radio. When the light goes off, you're finished. And he said, well... Okay, well, what happens if you know? Cause, and it was fifty-five zero minutes that they were giving him. So what happens if I finish in forty-five? He said, "Well, you better keep going, yeah, because you know because you got five more minutes. You, we cannot have empty." He said, "Well, that doesn't quite sound right. But what happens if it if it uh, what happens if I need to go fifty-five minutes?" So we well, better shorten it up because we're cutting you off at fifty minutes. He said, will well, do it then." He actually he did do it for a while. Then he cut it off a little bit later. But the second reason he he decided not to do it was because they had it on Sunday night. At the same time, the church service was meeting. And when they had it on Sunday night, their attendance was cut in half because half the people said, hey, listen, I'll just stay home listening on the radio. And that went right straight. What you did, you transferred it from the local church to a parachurch ministry. When you do not assemble yourselves together, the scriptures say, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And again, that's not doing anything to stroke my ego. It is to help you in your spiritual life. You believe it or not. The Holy Spirit is your mentor. He is the one that affects the spiritual growth, but he also uses the people that are sitting in front of you and behind you to do it. This, this, our time tonight has been a perfect example. You know, We gathered together and prayed for people as a group, corporately. And now some of the prayers were for people in this very room. Some of the prayers were for people that uh, would be here tonight but aren't here tonight because they're ill. Some of the people we've been praying for for a long time. I'm, I ran, ran into Kendall Weeks about a week ago. Couldn't stop couldn't stop telling me how much he appreciated our local church praying for him pastor up in Vancouver Washington so the pastoral epistles i think are poorly named because they they tell us so much more than just how a pastor should behave in the local church they tell us how we all ought to behave within this institution that God himself has ordained so the pastoral epistles are for all of us and we'll never see it anymore than we will in tonight's passage. Paul says this in verse 15 of chapter 2. We ended here last time. He says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And then he goes on into chapter 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. To be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Before he gets into chapter 3, where he gives these citizens of Crete instruction on the importance of the, the outreach of their local church into the community, not only corporately, but especially individually as well, he pauses to give Timothy, I mean, I'm sorry, Titus, one last Word of personal encouragement. Titus is reminded that he has been given the authority by Paul, who has been given the authority by God. So it's ultimately uh, Titus's authority rests in the Holy Spirit to exercise strong leadership in the local church in Crete. Strong leadership has, has as has been said in, in other contexts, strong leadership has fallen on hard times. In the, in the church of Jesus Christ today. Because strong leadership is viewed as a negative in most circles. If I've had people call me, I've had people upset down with, with some, maybe even folks here, and mean no offense by it at all, but that, that are very concerned with churches that have strong leaders. Because in a democratically minded society, uh, where, where everybody ought to have an equal voice, that doesn't sound good. But scripturally, a church without strong leadership is in big trouble. The problem is not in strong leadership. The problem is in leaders who don't have integrity. That's where the problem is. It, it's, it's, there's no magic in any particular form of government of a church. The New Testament is not real specific as to whether it ought to be elder rule or congregational rule or, or um, the Anglican form or, or um, any, any of these uh, things in between. The New Testament is, though, very specific about the character of those who occupy the leadership positions. That's more important than the form itself. So Paul tells Titus, These things speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority. The these things. This this verse provides a transition, of course, between chapters 2 and 3. And it's, a, it's what New Testament authorities call a summary command. Most likely, Paul is not referring to when he says these things... Although this is transition between two chapters, the these things covers everything that he has already said or will say in this epistle. All these things that are being spoken need to be spoken in this way. These things speak, exhort, and reprove. The word speak is the same command that was issued in chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. It's almost synonymous with the idea of teaching. And it's occurring in a verbal way. Today we have a lot of different ways of speaking the truth. We've got print media. We've got the Internet. We've got CDs or MP3s. But the most basic way to communicate truth from one person to another person is, is, is by virtue of one person's voice to the other person's ears. These are, this word then is synonymous with teaching. Teaching. The second word is important for context. My Bible says exhort. This is the word parakaleo. It means to cause someone to be encouraged or consoled, either by verbal or nonverbal means. I want to say that again. Parakaleo is a very common word in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, we get, we get one of the titles of the Holy Spirit from this word. This is the verb parakaleo. Anybody hear a title for the Holy Spirit? I heard it over "paraclete." The 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 paraclete of the Holy Spirit was going to be one who comforted, one who consoled, one one who encouraged. That's why you you see encourager churches out there. Now, if you see an encourager church, they're probably naming it after the Holy Spirit, and, and perhaps my my first guess would they be Pentecostal in their theology. But but it's it's directed to that word paraclete. Well, this is the verb parakleo, and New American Standard chose to translate it exhort. But I think it probably would be most better understood as to encourage. It can mean to reprove, uh, but, but it is uh, most commonly understood as encouraging. So it would be understood like this. These things speak, or these things teach, and encourage. Titus's words, Titus' speaking, his instruction, his, his teaching, to the churches in Crete, in general, are to be gentle. He's to teach and he's to encourage them to follow the instruction. None of us like it, but we've been called sheep by the scriptures. I guess the less we know about sheep, the more, or the less that offends us. The, probably the more you know about sheep, the more that would be offensive. But, but we've been called sheep All of you, as a sheep, belong to God. Jesus Christ is the shepherd with the big S. I'm an under-shepherd. Nobody belongs to me in here. I, I talk about my sheep, but only in the sense that they've been delegated to me, in terms of responsibility, not in terms of ownership. When at all possible, God's truth should be communicated to God's sheep with gentleness. I know even in this room tonight, there are people in this room that think gentleness is a weakness. Well, shame on you, because it's not. God's truth should, under normal circumstances, be communicated in gentleness. Let me see if I can illustrate in these two ways. I think one of the two will probably get through, I hope. When you call a babysitter over to babysit your children, you're going to go out for the evening. You will probably at least Cindy always gave the babysitter instructions. You know, I, I'd like for you to get them dressed for bed at this time, and and then would you make sure they do this right before bed, and then would you make sure that they're in bed by uh, nine o'clock? Now, when you when you give someone a charge over your loved ones, and then give them instructions as to what you want them to how you want your loved ones to behave, at least I would expect whoever was sitting with my children. Then to give those instructions it, with the same attitude, with the same courteousness, kindness, love that I would have given them. If I'm going to tell my children, hey, listen, guys, it's time to go to bed, and they somewhat obey. If, if I would do it in, in that frame of mind, I would expect who's ever babysitting for me to do it in that frame of mind. And if they can't, then they just say, hey, listen, I can't do that. I'm not babysitting for you. Well, that, that's cool. But, but if it came to be 8.30, and let's say we were one of those high-tech parents that had the camera. You know how they do nowadays, have the camera and the, and the audio sounds. They can tell how you're behaving. And you remember seeing some of these on the Internet, you know, where the babysitter would just start knocking the kids around. Get down, bed right now, you bunch of lazy, old, rotten kids. You know, Now as a parent, that's not the instruction you gave, was it? Assuming the kids are behaving themselves in any way at all. I know that sometimes kids don't, and that's the parent's fault more than the kid's fault, I think. But you would expect your instructions to be followed out with gentleness, unless there's some compelling reason not to. Now, if that one didn't get through, let me, let me give you this one. Let's say you're going away for the holidays. And you decide to board your dog down at uh, Dog's Best Friend, uh, wherever that is, up on the 45. It's, it's another name, but I don't want to get sued by him. Just, let's, say you, let's, let's say you board them up at Dog's Best Friend, and you've got your sweet little cuddly, nice little wonderful little ball of fur that is your pride and joy. And you love this little dog, and it sleeps with you even. Then you take it somewhere to be boarded. Wouldn't you, under, under, unless it was extraordinary circumstances, wouldn't you expect them to treat that dog with the same love and kindness that you would treat that dog? And if not, you're sure. If you ever find out, you're sure not going to ever use them again. You know, if, if you leave the dog and they're good and they come back and they're all skittish, you figure maybe something happened. You know, if they're screaming and yelling at your dog and drop kicking it across the goalpost of life or something, you're not going to be real happy with them, are you? No. Now, granted, if if the sweet little pup when they walk in to to uh, to feed it one day bites them on the hand, uh, you know, then then sure you might have a word or choice word or two to say about that, but that's the abnormal behavior. You see the difference? I'm talking about with your kids, if, if they're acting well, then you wouldn't expect the babysitter to be fussing and yelling and taking a belt off and whooping them, if they're acting appropriately. If your dog is not biting somebody and you're taking them, you would expect them to treat them with love and kindness. And that's the way God expects his under-shepherds to take care of his sheep, with love and kindness, unless there's some compelling reason... To take the belt off. You see, it? and that's the first two here. These things speak or teach and exhort, which also actually should parakaleo it's actually uh, matter of fact, I'm being kind, I totally disagree with the with the translation of exhort there. The, the context is encourage, and I'm not the only one, many New Testament authorities do. These things teach and exhort or encourage. But now there's a third word that is taking the belt off. And that's this word, uh, reprove. Um, this is the word, "egleke," and, and it does mean to, to rebuke. But it's not the sheep that are behaving that are to be rebuked. And this, this is the occupational hazard of anyone who teaches. Remember back when you were in school, maybe college, not so much high school, but, but it could be, happen in high school too, and you'd, you'd come in and half the class would show up, and the other half skipped class that day, and at least at least half the time, maybe six, seven times out of ten, what did the professor do? Usually, they ripped the people that were there up like nobody's business. And then, typically, if, if it was in my age group, they would have raised their hand and said, "Hey, listen, what are you fussing at us for? We're the ones that showed up." You see? Well, it's just it's 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 part of the nature. This is not what is to be done. The ones that are to be uh, reproved and this is very strong language or to, to be rebuked are the ones that are the false teachers, the ones that are fomenting rebellion in the church, the ones that are the bad apples or at least that are acting like a bad apple for that moment. Any of us can be a good apple and, and have temporary insanity and act like a bad one now and then. But in, in general when unless there's a compelling reason God's truth should be presented In in a gentle and encouraging way. Except if there's someone trying to destroy the sheep. Now if a wolf comes through the door, we're not going to dialogue. If if a wolf comes through the door, a good shepherd will meet that wolf and do everything they can to to take that wolf out. Because that wolf is going to be harmful to the rest of the body. So a a pastor has to have... uh, Uh, an all-encompassing personality which can exhibit gentleness when the time is appropriate, but also rebuke with the degree of harshness that is necessary to get that job, job done as well. Now, that's one of those pastoral parts of the pastoral epistles, but I thought you'd at least like to hear it, because you need to know at least what's expected of your leadership. But now... lest lest I lose you for the last uh, 15 or so minutes that we have, uh, Paul brings up um, somewhat of a controversial issue. Um, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one despise you. This, This is one of the few personal notes in this epistle. As, as Titus carries out these instructions, he is not to allow anyone to look down upon him. This is not because of Titus's ego. This is because of, of Titus's representation. I understand the President of the United States recently had a, a going-away dinner for the United Nations Secretary General. They've never gotten along, not for one minute. As a matter of fact, the United States Secretary General has never gotten along with any American that I know of for one minute. But the President of the United States had a dinner for him as he went out. And there was a lot of discussion on the radio this last week as to why he would do that. And finally, the report came back from the from the White House because that's what presidents do. Because with the dignity of that office, the, a president should occupy that office with dignity, and that's a, that's a function that should be performed no matter what a lowlife the, the Secretary of the General of the United Nations may or may not be. In this case, he is a lowlife, and I'll be happy to say it. But uh, but but the word here perifreneto means to uh, means to refuse to recognize the force or power of something. Let no one disregard you in that way. Let no one reject the authority. And again, that's another bad word, isn't it? We like to insert the word leadership today, <laughs> because authority is just a terrible word in many circles. Well, that has to do with our postmodern thinking. The the, the one who communicates does have authority in the sense that he's communicating for God. and I get out in the parking lot and get, you know, get the football. There's no authority there that's inherent in the office itself, except for when one is standing in the pulpit or, or functioning in that particular way, a way of, of leadership in the church. So, the, the bottom line is, Titus is not to allow anyone to treat him with contempt. It, it'd be like this, if you're a physician and uh, someone is in your office, you, you step out for just a moment to, to check the file, and you would walk back in and see the, the person who's the patient has shifted chairs from, the, from their chair and is sitting in your chair, you know, leaning back. <laughs> it's not the best setting for a consultation. Because in, in the same way, that physician, when they're in their office, they have a certain amount of authority. I mean, you, you've come to them for advice, and now you just, you've just purposely tried to turn it up. I know of a situation where that happened one time. It's, it's not a fake example. It's a real example. And, and the doctor th- threw him out of the office. Amazing. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him at all for doing that, because it would not have been a good, re- it would not have been a good relationship. And would send him down to a mental health specialist or something, but not, not any other kind of physician. You're not to allow them to treat you with contempt. Now, Timothy was told almost the same thing. In Timothy's case, Paul says almost the same thing. He says, because of your age. Don't let them treat you con- with contempt because of your age. He doesn't tell that to Titus. That's why most would say, think that Titus is a little older than Timothy. He's, age is not a problem. But the idea is both needed the exhortation from Paul. Sometimes we get the idea that Timothy was weak-kneed and Titus was a marine sergeant. Well, we get that from the, the way that they were treated in Corinth. And perhaps Timothy didn't need exhorting, but so did Titus. Just because you need exhortation doesn't make you weak. Both of them needed exhortation. Why would Paul express this kind of concern for Titus? Well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, there is a natural opposition to authority. Especially when that authority is telling you you need to change your behavior. It's natural. Anytime someone comes up and says, you need to do this, and they're in a position of authority, there is a natural opposition that we have to it. All of us, I do too. And I know some of you do, because I can see it on your faces. Anyone in Titus's position, even Paul, would have been looked upon with disdain. Especially in the culture of Crete. But I'll tell you what, in our culture today as well, you preach with authority. And, and that, again, is a negative in many people's eyes, but not in... Not in the eyes here. Now, what is he going to tell them to do corporately? Well, one of the things is he's, uh, we have just enough time for one of them tonight. And that's to be a good citizen. Remind them, which would indicate to me that Paul had already told them this once when he was teaching in Crete the first time around. So they were just. they needed to be reminded to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. To be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, why in the world would Paul care how these believers behave toward government and toward people, other people who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? When I started tonight, I said we have responsibility within our walls, but we also have responsibility outside of our walls. Tonight, you're functioning primarily, at least right now, under your priesthood, the priesthood aspect of your Christianity. That's the relationship that you have directly with the Father. But as soon as we leave here, we function under another aspect. And that's our ambassadorship. We represent God to a lost and dying world. And if we do that poorly, if we do it in the way that's mentioned here, we're not going to do it well at all. And we're not going to make Christ beautiful. By the way, Paul said that one time. Or not, not the apostle, but the associate pre- pastor Paul said that maybe six or seven months ago, and, and a few of you had a cow when he said that that, that this kind of behavior would, would make Christ beautiful, or this kind of behavior would not make Christ beautiful. I think you had a cow way too quickly. and this, since he's not here tonight, I will tell you that. That, that is a perfectly legitimate statement. It was made by all the church fathers. and, and all that means is that, that if see, people see you acting ugly as a Christian, then you know what they ultimately see? they see Christ acting ugly. If they say you acting beautiful, then you, it's not that you make Christ beautiful in the sense of his essence, but you portray him as beautiful. So I haven't had an opportunity to do that. that was, uh, there's nothing wrong with that statement at all. The charge to be good citizens is especially important to those in Crete because it seems as though the Cretans were notoriously turbulent and unruly when it came to politics. God's plan was then and is now for Christians to set a good example by being good citizens, and not implicating a particular church in political agitation. One thing that we need to remember when we study anything, we've done this before, we'll kind of pick up here next time too, when we study anything about Christians and government is, at the time Paul writes this, Nero is the emperor, and I don't care what political party you are, I don't care who gets elected president next, and that's a pretty broad statement, but whoever gets elected president is not as bad as Nero, I know. (laughs) <laughs> I've read Nero and I just it'd be awfully hard to be as bad as him. Also, the second thing you need to remember is today we live in a at least theoretically a representative republic. We are Caesar. We do have certain responsibilities. And and because time is, is, is fading tonight, let me just let me say this. You have a responsibility to be a good citizen and choose leaders. Don't stay home. Don't don't stay home and stomp your feet and, and close your arms and say this candidate's is not perfect, so therefore I'm not going to vote for either one of them and then get all upset when when things don't work out the way you want them to work out you need to you need to express your voice now I'm not going to do it because I've been called into pastoral ministries. Maybe you need to run for Congress maybe yeah. or maybe maybe one of our Christian friends from another church needs to run for Congress. But we are Caesar, so we need to we need to be careful about that. Remind them, again, means that Paul has already told them that. We know from the writings of Polybius and Plutarch, two early historians, that the Cretans didn't really handle Roman leadership very well. They were rebellious, and so it's possible also that that has to do with this reminder here as well. In First Timothy, Paul tells the Ephesians to pray for the rulership. Now he tells them to be obedient. This is almost the same thing he says when he writes to the Romans: be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. There are exceptions. The exception, of course, is Acts 5:29. You know when when John and Peter have to stand up and say, "No, I'm going to." If it comes down to a conflict between the law of God and the law of man then I'm going to obey the law of God. If it comes down to a conflict between the two, but if there's a way that you can obey the law of men without uh, breaking the law of God, that's our responsibility. There's something else, though, and don't miss it, because this is probably the key phrase, to be ready for every good deed. One of the criticisms that came to the church, and is probably justified, is that the church at large has left a lot of charitable activities to governmental agencies now. I know why, because government's taxing people so much, the churches don't have the money to spend on it. But when there's a hurricane, it's the churches that ought to be the first ones down there, helping them rebuild or giving some money to help that be done. And in the, these two recent hurricanes, I'm, I'm glad to say I, it was by and large. When there are sicknesses and illnesses, the church has to participate. Now, quickly, these in verse 2 should be pretty self evident, but we're not to malign anyone. It stands to reason, I hope. In intrusive, abusive language is out of place for anyone, certainly for believers. Now, this is different than calling a sin a sin. If, if, a, if something is sinful and we don't call it a sin, sin, then woe to us. But there are some that make a career out of maligning. And, and believe you me, they're going to malign you at the lunch table, and is, I mean, they're going to malign someone else at the lunch table. As soon as you get up, they're going to malign you too. It's just a disease. It's 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 not uh, something that endears anyone to anybody. So that is that is a sin. Again, this is not saying if, if something is, is is a is a fact. You know, if I was to say uh, uh, you fill in the blank, this particular politician is in favor of partial birth abortions. That's not maligning. That's a fact. You know, but if but if all I want to do is just just run them down every aspect of their personal life and and the things that I don't really know a whole lot about and that's my whole modus of is just to malign, 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 and malign some more. It's not going to do anything but hurt you, and that includes pastors too. You know? So we need to move away from that. We don't need to be contentious or quarrelsome. We need to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's the Christian's responsibility. It doesn't just mean some. By the way, this is the same phraseology that's used in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved. And in that passage, there are some that would love to say that means some from all categories of men. Same phraseology that's used here. Do we want to say that we're supposed to be showing consideration for some of every category of person? No. We're going to show some consideration for some Indians, and then some consideration for some in Pakistan. No, of course not. That's silly. It's amazing what kind of exegetical hoops we try to jump through to justify certain systems. This is our responsibility. An ambassadorship. What is an ambassador? He's an authorized representative of a sovereign. He speaks not in his own name, but on behalf of the ruler whose deputy he is. And his whole duty and responsibility is to interpret that ruler's mind faithfully to those to whom he sent. That's us. That's you and that's me. We are to represent Christ in a way that he deserves to be represented. And we should do that consistently during our entire stay on earth after salvation. We should fulfill that function, the function of our ambassadorship with honor, integrity, and Christ-like behavior. Well, more on the, the Christian's responsibility, how we should act within the local church as we continue on in chapter 3. Heavenly Father we're appreciative tonight once more of the fact that you've that you've called us and you've saved us you've justified us and and put us in a position of eternal security Father may we never though take that lightly take it for granted or abuse that may we be ambassadors for you in a way that you would have us to be, may we May we function out in our communities in a way that would be lovely and not ugly. May we take our responsibility to be an ambassador seriously. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.